welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Do you skip over the greetings in Paul's letters, or do you wonder who those people were? Lead teacher Jeff Norris finishes the series Colossians, The Supremacy of Christ, with this sermon entitled Communal Perseverance, which covers Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 to 18. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Today's scripture reading comes from the fourth chapter of Colossians, verses 7 through 18. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas." Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's, uh, let's read aloud together as we do each week our prayer of illumination. Almighty God and most merciful Father, we humbly fall before your majesty and ask that the seed of your word now sown among us may take such deep root that persecution may not uproot it, nor the thorny cares of this life choke it. Instead, as seed sown in good ground, May it bring forth 30, 60, or a hundredfold as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Amen and amen. I joked with the earlier service that uh, with this being the week of General Assembly and only getting to prepare a sermon for just a few hours, um, I hope this goes well. And if it doesn't, uh, that might be the reason why. If it does go well, I'm going to start questioning why I spend so many hours a week on my other sermons. Um, no. In all seriousness, the Word of God goes, uh, goes forward in power, and we'll trust that this morning regardless of preparation. You, uh, you may have heard the passage that was just read as we finish out our teaching through the book of Colossians and thought, um, what am I to glean from that? That's the part of the letter that I typically skip at the end of all of those letters that I typically skip, because he's just saying so-and-so says hi, and so-and-so says hi, and so-and-so says hi. And how are we to, 
How do we take this as God's word and, and learn something from it and, and apply it in a way that would be meaningful and appropriate? I do think this, I, I fully believe that every part of what's in our Bibles is breathed by God. It is, is inerrant, useful for our lives. And even this passage today, and you might have to read between the lines a little bit, but I think there's a lot in here for us. And what I think is one of the common threads that's in this passage is actually something that was at the very heart, one of the things that was at the very heart of the Reformation, and that's perseverance. If you go back to the, uh, the Protestant Reformation and, and those who helped bring that along, led by the Holy Spirit, Martin Luther, John Calvin, others, one of the things that they emphasized greatly along with justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, is they emphasized what we have called now for a while, for many centuries, perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of those who believe and follow Jesus. And one of the reasons that they emphasized it so emphatically is because the, the Catholic Church of that day for many centuries had been teaching erroneously that you could lose your salvation, that you couldn't have assurance that you're actually saved and that you uh, may not persevere to the end. And the reformers came along and with scripture showed, no, this is not at all what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you can be sure that you are in Christ and that there are actual things that God has given us to be able to mark, if you will, things that we can look for outwardly that exemplify the life that is becoming of a believer. Now, granted, we can't see the hearts of each other. We can't know our hearts. Only God can do that. And he is the one who keeps the Lamb's book of life. But there is great confidence to be had and great assurance to be had for those who are in the faith that they will persevere to the end. And the greatest of assurances is this, that it's not based upon us. The church back then in the 1500s and previous centuries was teaching that it was based on our merit both to win for ourselves salvation through our work and our morality, but then also to keep it. And that you can't really ever be sure that your work is enough, both for God and for the church. But the scriptures teach, no, 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 there is assurance of salvation and the saints of God. Just a, a word, don't think those who are the most godly, it just means followers of Christ who have been redeemed by him. The saints of God will persevere. Why? Because it's not based on our merit. It's not based on our goodness. It's not based on our morality. It's based on the finished work and merit of Jesus. His blood shed for us. So the confidence comes not from our ability to be faithful because we are so very often actually faithless but in God's faithfulness to us. He holds us, it's his grace that carries us. It's the cross of Jesus that speaks a better word over us. It's the blood of Christ that declares us to be righteous. And so we are a people who if we are in the faith, we will persevere because God's the one who's doing the work. The, the couple of outward signs, if you will, that God has given us to be able to say this can give us confidence is fruit. It's fruit of the Spirit, spiritual fruit that flows out of us. The hard part, the tricky part about that is that you can be a part of the visible church and you can be around Christians and church life enough to where you can fake fruit. You can learn how to talk Christian, 
how to act Christian in such a way to where fruit looks very abundant, but really there's no transformed heart. So that can be tricky, admittedly so, which is why God gave us this second aspect of something that points us to assurance, and that is those who persevere to the end. So we can deductively logic at that point then that those who don't persevere to the end, regardless of whatever seemingly good fruit that they had produced in the, in, the, in the past, if they don't persevere, then they never knew Jesus. It's not that they knew Jesus and were saved and then lost their salvation. If they didn't persevere to the end, if they abandoned the faith, regardless of what a great display of fruit they seem to have, their lack of perseverance is evidence of their lack of, of saving faith. And so with this passage, how do we get this out of this passage? Well, let me, I've set it up to some extent. Let me set it up just a little bit more and say this. Several weeks ago, I had the privilege of interviewing Jen Wilkin. Jen is an outstanding Bible teacher, has produced great, a great number of, of books and Bible studies for women in the church. And I was able to interview on our interview her on our Digging Deeper podcast, which is the main podcast of Perimeter Church. I hope you've been listening to this most recent series that we're calling Faith And. Her episode was Faith in the Bible. And so she was at one point talking about her great concern for those who are a part of the church today and their biblical illiteracy. How many come to church or are a part of the church uh, who don't read their Bibles, don't know their Bibles, don't know the Word of God. And it was in that context that she said this. She said, the two prevailing cult cultural influences that I am beginning to see as wreaking havoc in so many circles in the church, I refer to them as the two eyes we need to pluck out or to gouge out. They are instant gratification and individualism. Jen identified the two eyes that we need to gouge out, as it were, individualism and instant gratification. Now, I might be so bold to add one more. We'll have three eyes that we need to gouge out, and it's isolation. I don't mean isolation in the sense necessarily of what came about as a result of COVID and how we were isolated in that season in those, those times. I mean it more in the natural bent of our hearts to where we are given to isolation in the sense that we don't think we need each other. So instant gratification might be as it pertains to our relationships and with one another is that if you're not giving me what I need in this relationship quickly, then I'm gonna move on to the next person. Individualism is, that plays into that and into isolation is, uh, isolationism is, is individualism says, I got this, I can do this on my own. Isolation says, I don't need you. Because what we see at play here in this passage is an emphasis on how our need for one another, for fellowship, for encouragement and discipleship is tethered to our ability to persevere in the faith. It actually speaks against in every way our tendencies towards instant gratification, individualism and isolation. What we see here in the text to sum it up is that our, our perseverance in the faith as I said, is tethered to, it's tied to, it's linked to, it's an aid in. It's not the anchor, but it's an aid in that God has given us, an aid in this 
persevering in the faith as we experience fellowship with one another. So let's walk through the text. I'm going to give you two major points. We're going to walk through it, and then we'll come to the table together. The first one is, I've already said it, I'll say it one more time. I want us to observe, I want us to think about, I want us to ponder the persevering power of Christian fellowship, encouragement, and discipleship. Because one of the things that is very clear to determine from these last few verses in this, in this letter is that those things were happening. With Paul and these brothers that he's talking about, there was significant, deep Christian fellowship. There was significant and deep Christian encouragement. There was significant and deep Christian discipleship. And before we jump in, we're just gonna walk through each person that he names. I'm gonna tell you a little bit about each person that he, that he names and how there's this, this rich fellowship happening among them. Before we do that, let me just say one last thing as, as way of introduction. If you were to ask many of us, if, if not most of us, and this is not a knock on you guys or on me, I, would, I might be tempted at cer certain times in my life to answer the same way. But if, if you were asked, what is church? The, the answer that is going to most commonly be given back to that question is it's a Sunday morning gathering where we sing and stuff. I mean, that's, that's going to be the most common answer in some form or fashion. We sing, we listen to a guy talk, and we go. And that's church. But biblically, as you read through the New Testament, there's, there's not a ton of emphasis. There's a lot of emphasis on singing in the Word, yes. But the major emphasis of what it means to be a part of the church, to be a member of God's people, is to give our lives away to one another, to do life together, to have deep fellowship, encouragement, and discipleship with one another. Church is so much, in the pages of the Bible, church is so much more than showing up and receiving it's living together with one another, giving our lives away to one another. And so what happens a lot of times, the reason this whole individualism and isolation and, and instant gratification uh, keeps us from that, I want you to think about this, is because we've conditioned ourselves to think that we have deep fellowship and friendship and encouragement and discipleship when we really don't. Because we'll do things, I know it's the thing, always the easy thing to point to, but it's a major factor, I have to point to it. Because of our devices, right? We will spend so much time here connecting with people through an app, through social media, through texting, even FaceTime, whatever it may be. And we'll spend time doing that, and that's good, that's okay, but it's not what God intended. It's not life on life. Or other really good things that we'll do. We'll, we'll join a tennis league and we'll play tennis with a lot of people or we'll be in a basketball league and we'll play basketball with a lot of people. And we will enjoy that and there is something positive in that to be sure. But it stays shallow. Such that we become really good at this. We say, come close, come close. But really we don't want it. We stop them about at arm's length. Say, that's far enough. I don't really want you to know me. And if I'm being honest, I don't really want to know you. 
That's more the posture of our hearts masqueraded by all these ways of connection where we're really, truly, mostly in isolation. What we see at the end of the book of Colossians is a demonstration on display of Christian fellowship and encouragement and discipleship. So here's what Paul says as he's finishing out his thoughts to the Colossians. He begins to list a number of people who've had a great impact on Paul and on the church. So he starts with this guy named Tychicus. <laughs> what a name, right? We're going to start naming our kids that again. Tychicus. He says, Tychicus will tell you all about our activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So we learn from other parts of Scripture as well that Tychicus was a dear friend, a close friend of Paul's, and often his courier. He took this letter to the Colossians from Rome. Paul's writing during his first imprisonment in Rome. And so he takes this letter to the Colossians. He takes the letter that Paul wrote to Philemon as well, because Philemon is a member of the church of Colossae. Philemon, that's where he is. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And we learn that Tychicus was also the one who took the letter from Paul to the Ephesians. So this is a loyal brother and friend of Paul, someone that he trusts deeply, someone that he would take uh, so much confidence in that he would send these letters with him to be delivered and not just to be a mailman and drop the letters off and say, here you go, but to spend time with them because what does he say? That he will encourage your hearts. Fellowship, encouragement, discipleship. Onesimus is who he uh, mentions next, and you may recognize that name because we learn about him in that little letter that Tychicus took as well to the Colossians, but specifically to this individual in the church named Philemon. And Onesimus is Philemon's former slave. And Paul, this is really fascinating of how these uh, lines begin to cross and the cobweb or the, the spiderweb begins to uh, come about and, and all these connections are made. Because Paul actually meets Onesimus in prison there in Rome. We don't know for sure, we can guess. Onesimus did something. Some theologians, some commentators guess that he stole something from Philemon and then ran away. Whatever he did, he got in trouble, and as God would have it in his providence, Paul and Onesimus end up together in prison. And it's there that Paul leads Onesimus to faith. And then, after he's led him to faith and he begins to understand who he is, where he's from, that he's connected to Philemon as his, as his former slave, he sends a letter to Philemon to say, look, I, this brother has been a great encouragement to me. I would like to keep him here, but I'm gonna send him back to you. And when he comes to you, Philemon, I don't want you to receive him again as your former slave. I want you to receive him as you would receive me, Paul says. Which is just beautiful, profoundly beautiful, because he's saying in every way, the gospel's on display here, because he's saying in every way you have a right to punish this former slave who may or may not have, but likely took from you and then ran from you, offended you, and you have a right to discipline him. But don't receive him as that. He's a brother in the faith now. 
Receive him as if you would receive me. Paul loved Onesimus. Listen, listen to the language that he used when in that letter to Philemon, he called him, he called him my child. He says, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Caleb prayed earlier, thanking the Lord for our spiritual fathers. This is Paul to Onesimus. This is, this is his spiritual father. Onesimus is his spiritual son. And then he says this, he says, he, ref, he calls him at one point in the letter, my heart. My heart. There's deep intimacy here. There's deep fellowship here. There's deep encouragement here. There's deep discipleship here. Then he, he lists three Jews who are with him. The first one he mentions is Aristarchus from, Theth, from Thessalonica. He calls him a fellow prisoner as well. It's a little debatable. Is that a literal prisoner with him and Onesimus and others? Or is it a, just a, a phrase that Paul would use often to refer to himself as a prisoner in the Lord? Metaphorically speaking, symbolically speaking, is, is that he's chained himself, as it were, to the Lord. We don't know which one of those that it is, but Aristarchus is a dear friend of Paul's, an encourager to him. And then he lists Mark, the author of the gospel of Mark. Mark is there in Rome with Paul. And this is the first time that we learn, we didn't learn about it in the book of Mark or any of the other gospels or Acts. It's the first time we learn Paul sheds light on that he is Barnabas's cousin. Which, if you remember back to what Dr. Chapel taught a few weeks ago about how John Mark, who is called Mark, had abandoned Paul on that first missionary journey, and there was a falling out with Paul and Barnabas over it. And the reason for that is because Barnabas was the cousin of Mark and deeply loved him. Then he, miss, then he mentions Jesus called Justice, and we don't know anything about him. He just mentions him is sending his greetings. But he says this, he says, these three brothers, these three Jewish brothers, the way he says it exactly is he says, um, these are the only men of the circumcision, meaning Jewish, among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a great comfort to me. There's a, there's a tone in there of, of Paul's disappointment in his people his Jewish brethren who have not embraced the faith, who have not believed upon Christ. And in this missionary journey, this third journey that he's on, uh, these are the only Jewish brothers with him. So there's disappointment in that, but there's also great encouragement. As he says, they have brought me great comfort. He pivots from that, now he's gonna mention three Gentiles. These three Gentiles are Epaphras and Luke, and one more that I'll mention later. Epaphras was an evangelist who most likely, as best as we can tell, was the founder and early pastor of this church in Colossae. Not only that, there's a triangle of churches right there in modern day Turkey that are all close in proximity. And it's, it's the, the Colossian church, it's the, it's the church in Laodicea, and it's the church in Hierapolis, all three of which are mentioned here at the end of this letter. Most likely, Epaphras, this evangelist, this warrior for the faith that Paul trusted so much, was the one who started each of those churches. There's great evidence that Paul was not the one who founded these churches, but that Epaphras was. Paul was just serving as a great encouragement to Epaphras. 
One of the ways that he refers to Epaphras is he says that you are one of us, meaning talking about the Colossians, meaning he has done life there with them. One of the things I love here in this part about Epaphras is it says this. He says that he was always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Talking, talking to the Colossians, he was always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. To what end? That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Quick little application point. Let's strive to be by the power of Christ within us. Let's strive to be Epaphras prayers. People who, yes, we wrestle with God on our own account. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we see that in the Psalms all the time. We're struggling before the Lord with our own hearts, but that we would be faithful and consistent to go before the Lord and carry each other to the throne room of grace. To carry each other in such a way that we would say, I'm gonna struggle before the Lord on your behalf as Epaphras did for the Colossians. Then he mentions Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke. Note that Mark and Luke were together in Rome, which I like to daydream about what was that like? One wrote one gospel that we have, the other wrote another gospel that we have, and did they compare notes? Was there time together on these missionary journeys and together in Rome where they, people, we, we have uh, understood that Mark wrote his gospel first, so is Luke looking at Mark's gospel as he writes his? We don't know. Some fun things to think about, but there was great fellowship. There was great encouragement. There was great discipleship going on. Luke was a remarkable person. Uh, he was always, always faithful to Paul. He was the only one, at a certain point, the only one still with Paul in his most dire moment. Because there were two imprisonments for Paul in Rome. The first one is when he wrote this letter to the Colossians. And it was a house arrest. It was, it was an arrest. It was prison, it wasn't fun or glorious, but he wasn't in literal chains, probably. And he wasn't in a dungeon of sorts. Now his second arrest in Rome, his second imprisonment in Rome is when he wrote 2 Timothy. And some of you have been to Rome and have seen the Mamertine prison that they are pretty sure is where Paul was kept during that second imprisonment. And it's literally a hole in the ground. It was awful conditions. And it's in that second imprisonment when he's writing Timothy that he would say this in 2 Timothy 4.11, Luke alone is with me. Luke's the only one still with him at that point. And then he says this, get Mark and bring him with you. His love for Luke and his love for Mark was so very significant. He continues and he sends greetings to the brothers at Laodicea, again, neighboring church, neighboring city. And he specifically mentions Nympha and the house that she hosts, the church that she hosts there in her house in Laodicea. Then he continues and specifically mentions a person named Archippus. And we learn that this is a member of Philemon's family that we talked about earlier in that letter to Philemon and most likely Philemon's son. And we also put together through historical accounts that it was Archippus who hosted in his home the church in Colossae. 
So you start seeing how there's just deep, interwoven, intermixed fellowship and encouragement and discipleship. They're not just showing up and singing and stuff. They're doing life together. They're deeply known by each other such that there would be mutual comfort, that they would prod each other along when they can't go any further, at least according to their own power. Some of the applications for us are to consider how this points us. We start cross-referencing in the scriptures and we go, oh yeah, this reminds me of 1 Corinthians 12. It's one body, but many parts. And yes, Paul, we can tend to lift up in such a way that we think that he's superhuman, but he's not. He, yes, an apostle of Christ, and yes, used magnificently by God, but he has his limitations and he can't do it alone and he deeply needs these brothers in the mission of the church. And Epaphras is just as important as Paul. And Philemon is just as important as as Paul. And Onesimus is just as important as Paul. There, There is no greater, more important person in the kingdom of God. We see that on display here. And not only that, we see again, and and it's just there all the time in the scriptures, we see that God is is about bringing together people that in the world's standards of things would never be brought together. You got got a former slave that Paul's saying, receive him as as if you would receive me, meaning he's your brother now, don't treat him as a slave. His slavery's over, Philemon. You got three Jews and three Gentiles who would never do life together, who are all together, six together, accompanying Paul and worshiping Jesus together and spreading the gospel together and growing the kingdom together and building the church together. Only the gospel can do that. Only Jesus can do that. We all can't pull that off. Can't make that happen. But there's another thing at play in this passage that we have to give just a little bit of time to, and that's this. I want us to observe that there's also an undermining power that we see here in the subtext. The undermining power, we might say, of love for the world and spiritual uselessness. Because I told you earlier, I said there's three Gentiles, and I didn't name one of them, and that was on purpose. The one I didn't name was Demas. Now, in this text, all we know about Demas is just like Jesus called justice, we don't know anything about him. It just says, as does Demas, send his greetings. But we learn from Paul's writings again in 2 Timothy that Paul didn't know at this point how greatly disappointed he would be by Demas. Because in that second imprisonment in Rome, when he's writing Timothy, he says this about Demas. He says, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. In love with this present world. Now we don't know. Admittedly, we we don't know. Does this mean that, does abandoning Paul mean that he abandoned the faith? Does this mean that he never knew Jesus? That he didn't persevere to the end? We don't know. Some people teach it that way. I tend to lean in that direction. If Paul is going to say this about him, it's, Perhaps, at least in my opinion, because Paul recognized he never knew the Lord. He loved the, he loved the world more than he loved the Lord, and so he left us. 
However, there's an argument to be made that by the time of his second imprisonment, Luke alone is with him. We know that Mark didn't fall away from the faith, and we know that others didn't fall away from faith, so just because they're not with him, does that mean that they abandoned the faith? We don't know. But we do know this. From the whole council of Scripture, we know that one of the things that we have to put to death on an everyday basis is love for this world such that it would supersede our love for Jesus. And I know if you've walked, for, walked with the Lord for any length of time, I know that you know like I know that to love Jesus more than the world means that I need you. I need deep fellowship. I need deep encouragement. I need deep discipleship. I need you to come alongside of me, and I need us to do life together. Because if I try to be in isolation and individualism and have instant gratification in my walk with Jesus, I will always be disappointed and I will always come up short. I desperately need you. We need each other. There's another thing at play, though, under the surface in this passage, and that's the church in Laodicea. Because if you flip to the end of the book of the Bible, Revelation, and you get to Revelation chapter 3, the end of that chapter, this is what you'll read. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. He says to them, I know your works. You are neither hot you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, truly rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, the one who perseveres, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. This church in Laodicea, according to Revelation, became so enamored with their success, specifically their riches, their wealth, that they lived as though and became convinced, maybe not overtly, at least by appearances, but in the heart, that they didn't need Jesus anymore. For years and years and years, we taught this passage wrong in the church. And the, the way that we taught it was that it, this was all about how on fire are you for the Lord? Are you, are you hot? Are you burning hot for the Lord or are you cold? But that's actually not the context. Very briefly, the context is this. In the Roman Empire, there were aqueducts that took water to various places throughout the empire. Some of those are still standing today. You can still see them. And they worked on gravity, they had to come from higher lands where the springs bubbled and through gravity's sake, come down to the lower lands. And many times the water that was coming down was from a hot spring, therefore the water was hot. Sometimes it was from a cold spring, therefore the water was cold. Sometimes though, the towns were far enough away from where it was coming from that it didn't matter if it was hot or cold, by the time it got there, it was lukewarm. 
And lukewarm water is useless in that day and age. You had to figure out ways to boil it, make it hot, or figure out ways to chill it and make it cold. But if you took it straight from the stream of the aqueduct, it was gonna be useless. The issue that Jesus had with the church of Laodicea that he brings out in Revelation is not, are you on fire for me emotionally? Do you feel it or do you not feel it? It's, are you useful? Are you posturing yourself in such a way before me that you're repentant? You're, you're repentant of the ways in which you run to things other than Jesus. And are, you, are you running to Jesus with all you got so that you may be used by him in his kingdom? These people that early on when Paul was writing them were so very useful have now become useless because they're lukewarm. Side note, I just think this is cool. Onesimus' name means useful. So when he sends Onesimus back to Philemon, he's basically saying to him, he's useful to you now. And this beautiful play of how the church, when repentant, when focused on Jesus, when doing deep fellowship and encouraging encouragement and discipleship together, we are useful to the king and to his kingdom. So how do we run to Jesus? Well, there's many ways that we can run to Jesus. One of the very best ways that God gave us to run to Jesus together, corporately, communally persevering together is the table. It's the Lord's table, communion. It's a means of grace. It's, it's a very, uh, we call it a sacrament because it's so significant, it's so special, it's so holy. Not because there's anything special in these elements. We don't believe that they become the literal body and blood of Jesus. But it is mysterious in this way, that we believe that when we do this together and we communally persevere together towards Jesus, and as we consider the cross among us and what Jesus did in breaking his body and spilling his blood, that there is a work that is done, mysteriously so, a means of grace that nourishes us as we do this together. It nourishes us by grace, strengthens us for the task that he's called us to, to this life that he's called us to. And so we come to the table, come to the table to repent. Maybe we're like Demas. Maybe we can say, just readily say, yes, I've loved the world more than I've loved the Lord. And so the table prompts us to repent, say, oh God, forgive me. We come to the table to repent because maybe we're like the church of Laodicea where we have become so enamored with our success and our riches that we haven't run to the one who actually is rich and gives us things that this world and their riches can ever give us. Wherever we are on that spectrum and everywhere in between, the table speaks a better word over us. The cross speaks a better word over us. Let's prepare our hearts for that as I pray. Father, we pray and ask that you, oh, oh God, would soften our hearts indeed as we enter into this sacrament together. Lord, do a work among us that only you can. Holy Spirit, meet with us. Lead us to repentance. Strengthen us for the life that you've called us to. 
Help us, O Lord, to enter into life with one another, that there would be deep and lasting and meaningful fellowship and encouragement and discipleship. Forgive us, O God, when we love the world more than you. Forgive us when we're distracted like the Laodiceans were. Lord, fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. May we see you in all of your beauty. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that I often think about in these letters that Paul writes and that Peter writes and that others write is I consider, I'm thinking about Paul this week is he's writing these letters from prison. And I don't know if he knew when he was writing them, but I think he had a good idea, especially by the time he wrote 2 Timothy, he definitely knew that he was going to be killed for his faith. Where was all this heading for him? It was, it was death. And then you consider some of these others. The, the, the end of these, of these apostles, Peter. Peter was killed for his faith, martyred for his faith. John, where, what about him? Well, he was exiled on the island of Patmos to die as a prisoner. Luke, Luke was killed for his faith. We, we, we could go on and on. And had the Heidelberg Catechism been written back then, that very first question in the Heidelberg Catechism, they would have said it aloud with us. And I ask you a question, let's respond together. From the Heidelberg Catechism says this, what is your only comfort in life and death? Let's read together. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. And a follow-up question would be this. What do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? First, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. Third, how I'm to be thankful to God for such deliverance. Jesus, because of his finished work on the cross, he is our only comfort in life and death. Jesus, because of his finished work on the cross, he is the one who preserves me to the end. He's the one that holds every hair of my head in place. He's the one who works all things together for my salvation. What's required of us? It's not try harder, be better, get your act together. It's simply what they said there, to recognize your sin and your misery to realize that all your sin and misery has been forgiven through the blood of Christ. And then third, be thankful. Thank you for the cross, oh Jesus. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. 
Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.